0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, 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 welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. You're going to hear Dr. James Densley of the Violence Project on mass shooters in the United States from 1966 to present. Paige Pate a prominent American criminal lawyer on the suicide of Jeffrey Epstein. Dr. Frank Farley, the past president of the American Psychological Association, also on the suicide of Epstein. Dorn Lomborg of the Consensus Center Think Tank in Copenhagen, named by Time Magazine among the world's 100 most influential people, speaks about climate change and climate change crisis hyperbole and Rob Baltovich. I spoke with Rob Baltovich about his being innocent of the murder of his girlfriend, Elizabeth Bain. Rob Baltovich was convicted of murder, spent eight years in prison before finally the truth came out and it was discovered that he was innocent. That and more on the podcast today. Now, the Violence Project has studied every mass shooting in the United States since 1966. And uh, the Violence Project is is really run by two people, Dr. Jillian Peterson, psychologist and professor of criminology and criminal justice at Hamline University. And Dr. James Densley, sociologist and professor of criminal justice at Metropolitan State University. And as I understand it, the Violence Project uh, was conducted, uh, at least in part, maybe entirely, for the United States Justice Department. We're joined by Dr. James Densley. Dr. Densley, thank you very much for taking the time. Good to talk to you.
1: Uh, Good to talk to you, too. Thanks for having me.
0: What got you started? And is this really for the Department of Justice in the United States? Was the Violence Project for them?
1: So we started this project about two years ago, uh, just gathering data with a handful of students out of curiosity and trying to fill in some of the gaps in our knowledge. But at the start of this year, we received funding from the US Department of Justice to expand the work. Uh, And so it was an open call for proposals, and we were lucky enough to receive some funding uh, through that process.
0: It's important work. Now, why did you choose 1966 and how many mass shootings have there been in, the, in that time period? And I suppose I should ask you as well, what for the purposes of the, of the violence um, um, project, what constitutes a mass shooting?
1: uh, These are all very great questions. So we start in 1966 because it's widely regarded as the first modern public mass shooting, which was the shooting at the uh, Texas Bell Tower uh, at the university down there. A very famous case because it was actually uh, filmed live on television. So many people point to that as being the start of this phenomena uh, as we currently know it. Um, Since then, we've had about 160 mass shootings, according to the definition that we're using, which is imperfect, but we are focused on cases where four or more people are murdered with firearms in a public space. And this excludes cases of domestic violence or cases uh, associated with gangs or robberies gone wrong and things like that. Um, So that's, that's what we're focused on.
0: So I did the math here, and I do remember that nineteen sixty-six shooting. I was a teenager at the time, but I remember reading about it and seeing television footage of it at the time. So I did some quick math, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's fifty-seven years if we go from sixty-six to whatever. I'm, I'm I'm out. but anyhow, uh, that's a, <laughs> that's why my bank accounts never 50, balance.
1: 50, 53, Fifty-three years. There you go. Uh, but it's yeah.
0: it's a it's it's a huge number. hundred and sixty. In 53 years, four people is the the minimum that you look at for the mass shootings, and it's not domestic violence issues. That is a huge number. Are you surprised at that number?
1: Well, it's it's sad that we have a number like that. Yeah, it is. because any one of these is just a kind of unspeakable tragedy. Yes. But to put, but to put it in context, um in the United States there are about uh, 14 to 15,000 homicides by firearm every year. Um and so mass shootings claim well if you take 2017 as an example, that was the worst on record, uh, 112 people were killed in public mass shootings by our definition. That includes the 58 who lost their lives at the shooting in Las Vegas. So if you do the math, it works out to be less than 1% of all firearm homicides meet the threshold of a public mass shooting. So they're still quite rare events, but they're very focusing events because of just how extreme the violence is.
0: Mm -hmm. You have interviewed mass shooters in prison. Tell us about that.
1: We have. We've been in, in correspondence with some uh, living uh, mass shooters to try and better understand what we're calling their biosocial, uh, psychosocial life histories, which is essentially a, a sort of fancy way of saying we want to know what got them to the point of the shooting in the first place. There's been a lot of reporting around the actual shootings themselves and the tragedy that occurs we're really interested in what got somebody to the point of the shooting in the first place. And we think we've identified a sort of framework for understanding these cases. Um, And that is as follows. Most of these individuals have experienced early childhood trauma and exposure to violence from a young age. They have some sort of identifiable grievance or they've reached a crisis point in their lives. At times that is a suicidal crisis. They are also searching for validation for their beliefs around the grievance or around the crisis. Uh, In some cases, actually studying past shootings to find inspiration. And then finally, if somebody with all those uh, criteria can identify and can access the means to carry out an attack, we're talking about the people and places to do so, but also access to firearms, then you kind of have this perfect storm uh, which results in the uh, in, in the mass violence that we see.
0: So it's the woe is Me" phenomenon. Uh, it's the blame game. Everybody else is to blame, not me. And with a mental health component added, I'm, I'm sure. Are they? Uh, were they quite glad to communicate with you? Were they willing to communicate with you? Quite willingly. Well, we have mixed uh, re- reactions. So
1: in some cases, people uh, were. Uh, unwilling to cooperate. In other cases, because of ongoing legal uh, issues uh, and appeals and other things, we weren't able to contact them. And there were also some sort of barriers with the Department of Corrections that we were communicating with because, obviously, these individuals were all incarcerated.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the other challenges is that there's a selection bias with the people that you talk to because the vast majority of uh, mass shooters um, will die at the scene or will die in prison. And so, and over, of course, a 53 year period, you also have individuals who have died by virtue of age and other factors as well. And so of those cases, there's only a very small number that are even available to talk to. Um, But we have had some luck in getting access to some people and it's been very uh, instructive for the work that we're doing to basically fill in the gaps in the knowledge that we don't have publicly uh, to better understand what's going on in people's lives,
0: yeah, I think that's very important. And uh, I'm not going to ask you who you communicated with. I refuse to give these people.
1: That's good because I can't tell you. Oh,
0: <laughs> well, good. Yeah, I mean, I refuse to give them any publicity or notoriety, which is what they're looking for. Doctor Densley, um, let me ask you quickly: How about the families of these mass shooters? What you find out?
1: It's been quite a privilege to be able to sit down with families, uh, survivors, first responders, others. And one of the things I think has really struck us in all of this is just that nobody ever gets over a mass shooting, no matter where you are situated in the orbit of one. And for the families in particular, one of the biggest challenges is that they really struggle with grieving for their own loved one, who has been a perpetrator and at the same time balancing their own sort of guilt and their own sort of uh, feelings for the families of all the other victims and everybody else who's also grieving and trying to process this loss and so it's a very very complicated picture and what we find when talking to family members is that in many cases, they were never expecting something so tragic to ever occur. But there were perhaps some signs that their son, because usually it was their son, uh, the vast majority of Masjid are a male, um, was struggling in some form of their life. And they had tried in some cases to intervene, but it was just never quite enough.
0: This is, these are people, uh, families of the mass shooters, the survivors of mass shootings, and the first responders. These are people who find themselves placed into impossible situations, who try to explain to themselves, let alone to everyone else, what just happened. And it's an imposs- it must be impossible for them, virtually.
1: To... It, it can be. I mean, we, the people we've spoken to, many of them have been through years of therapy yeah. Uh, are still trying to process the events of, of that day. And one thing that has been quite um, sort of exciting to see is that some of the individuals that we've spoken to, we feel have actually found their voice in the process of speaking with, the, with us. And in some cases, talking through this event for the purposes of the research has actually been quite cathartic for them. And some have actually become very empowered to actually share their story on a broader platform and really move into trying to prevent these shootings from ever occurring again. And that's, that's been a really powerful change that we've observed in some of the individuals we spoke to, not, of course, not all of them. Uh, But there have been these cases where people have been quite empowered by their participation in this type of research.
0: So how do you take what you've been able to assemble over this period of time and how do you apply it? How can it be applied to preclude at least some or get in the way of some mass shootings down the road?
1: Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. And so what we think is we have these four themes that I described earlier, and each one of those themes represents an inflection point or an opportunity for intervention. So if you work backwards, first and foremost, the means to carry out an attack, well, this is where we can start talking about uh, implementing some sensible uh, gun laws to uh, restrict access to firearms. And these can be really quite simple. For example, 80% of school shooters get their firearms from uh, family members. So just safe storage alone could avert some of these tragedies. Uh, And age restrictions would be another example uh, associated with that. Again, working backwards, the validation that we see that many mass shooters are searching for, often online, we have to do a much better job about preventing the spread of hateful rhetoric on social media uh, and holding tech companies accountable to pull down uh, potentially violent content um, before it inspires others to action. We think about a grievance or a crisis point, uh, the second step. Um, We all need to be more attuned to the the vast majority of people who are struggling, not just to avert a mass shooting, but just to think about how can we intervene when someone's in a suicidal crisis or where somebody is is angry and frustrated uh, in their circumstances. This is something we can all do uh, in schools in workplaces through crisis intervention and de-escalation training. And then finally, childhood trauma, exposure to violence. Well, obviously, there's work to be done in our families and in our communities. But that also speaks to things like, in the United States, having ready, uh, free or affordable access to health care, mental health care, so that people can get the support that they need.
0: And put down those damn phones once in a while and look in somebody's eyes.
1: I mean a lot of this is about relationships we interviewed a high school principal for example uh, who actually was able to uh, talk down a potential active shooter in his school uh-huh. we asked him what's the uh, what's the answer and he said one word relationships
0: dr. Densley uh-huh. thank you I really appreciate you coming on the program I think your work is extremely important thank you for sharing the time
1: it's been my pleasure thank you for having me
0: all the best. Dr. James Densley, you'll find him at jamesdensley.com. I mean that. Once in a while, just put down the phone and look at somebody and talk to them. You see people in a room together, and they're texting one another instead of just talking. Jeffrey Epstein uh, committed suicide. That's the official story that has come out of uh, New York, and uh, the federal installation where he was Housed. Joining us on the program is uh, Paige Pate, criminal defense and unconstitutional lawyer based in Atlanta, Georgia, former chairman of the criminal law section of the Atlanta Bar Association. And Mr. Pate wrote a piece, an op-ed piece for CNN, and uh, the headline is The Puzzle Around Epstein's Suicide. Mr. Pate, thank you very much for taking the time.
2: Absolutely. Thank
0: you, Roy. So I just want to read the first sentence and then ask you to expand on that for us of your piece. For such a high-profile case involving a wealthy financier with a wide network of powerful friends, the circumstances of Jeffrey Epstein's suicide at a correctional center in Manhattan raises serious questions. What are the questions it raises immediately with you?
2: Well, why it happened. Um, you know, I've been practicing federal criminal law for over 25 years, and I have never had a client. Nor even heard of a defendant who was an inmate in a federal holding facility uh, commit suicide so soon after causing harm to himself to put the institution on notice that he needed to be under suicide watch. So it's very unusual and. Um, The fact that he was previously on suicide watch because of his prior injuries makes it even more unusual in this case.
0: We don't really know that he attempted to commit suicide two weeks ago. There was markings on his neck. From what I understand, they never really explained that it was a suicide attempt, but he was on suicide watch. And then they took him off suicide watch and put him in a special handling unit. It makes no sense.
2: That's right, and you're correct. There had been no final determination as to what the the cause of those initial injuries were last month, but they were certainly consistent with someone who was attempting self-harm, perhaps another attempted hanging. I, I would assume that Epstein did not want the guards to think he was suicidal, so he probably did whatever he could to get back into the special housing unit and off of suicide watch. But policy at that prison, and all federal prisons, is very specific. You can only take someone off suicide watch when the crisis is over. Now, you have to define the crisis, but normally they will keep someone on suicide watch for several months uh, if the person's being detained long-term, just to avoid this kind of risk.
0: So you know what's going on, Mr. Pate. There's a, a lot of conjecture, a lot of speculation um, that, look, this wasn't a suicide, that this was getting Epstein out of the way because he has powerful friends, very powerful friends, who might have been dragged into his his orbit in a, in a trial. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I really am not. But I tweeted earlier today, this story to me, at least right now, kicks open the door for conspiracy theory. Well, again, it's unusual,
2: and I think you have to start with that. I mean, if you're an inmate in a federal institution, whether it's after conviction or like Mr. Epstein, before trial in a, in a holding facility, uh, these inmates are monitored. And even though he was off suicide watch, he was in a special unit, a special housing unit, we call it the shoe, where inmates are kept away from other inmates. They're watched more closely. They're more guards per inmate than in general population. So I can understand why someone would speculate that, hey, this is not normal, something nefarious went on. But the reality is uh, there's no evidence to support that. And simply with him gone, uh, that's not going to end the investigation. I mean, the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York has been very clear that they're going to continue their conspiracy investigation into the sex trafficking allegations. So uh, it's not going to end the case or end potential jeopardy for those who may have been associated with it.
0: What happens to his uh, alleged victims?
2: Well, as far as the criminal case against Epstein, that will be dismissed. Um, Those victims, though, do have the right to pursue civil lawsuits. Uh, We can assume that Mr. Epstein still has a a very... uh, valuable trust uh, in a state. Uh, I don't know what his will provides. I don't know where the money is going to go, but there there are assets out there that they can pursue. Um, But other than that, you know, they're not going to have their day in a criminal court, and, and that's a fact, at least as far as Mr. Epstein. Now, again, if other individuals are later charged, then perhaps it will go to trial.
0: This has, and I, I don't like using the word alleged and victims. I mean, I consider these young women to be his victims, and he's already been was already in prison for, 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 for aberrant behavior. This is going to have to move along very quickly, isn't
2: it? Well, I don't know that it will. Um, you know, it, it took many years to get to this point. Uh, as you pointed out, he had previously served a prison sentence in Florida for related conduct, Um, But many people criticize that as a sweetheart deal. Uh, He was basically given preferential treatment. He was not prosecuted on the federal level. He was uh, able to plead to a much lower offense in state court and and got out relatively early. So it's taken a decade to get to this point. And if there are other individuals who are going to be charged, we don't have a timeline for that. I mean, if the government had sufficient evidence against them when they charged Epstein, they would be indicted right now, and they're not.
0: Yeah. I know people are going to be very anxious uh, to find out what actually, you know, what, what what did happen, because we need more information than we've gotten so far. Mr. Pate, thank you so much. Good talking to you. I pretty much appreciate the time. Thank you, Roy. Paige Pate, criminal defense and constitutional lawyer based in Atlanta, Georgia, former chairman of the criminal law section of the Atlanta Bar Association. And he wrote, wrote an op-ed piece uh, for CNN today, The Puzzle Around Epstein's Suicide. It just... You know you know what we talk about periodically, the smell test? There is no way this passes the smell test. It just doesn't. It just makes you feel queasy. Jeffrey Epstein, of course, is dead. And the official line is that he committed suicide. Again, a lot of questions, as you know. I'm sure you're asking questions, too, even if you're not a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not. But, boy, there are questions. So many. But let's deal with the issue of people who are suicidal. And what drives someone to suicide? And could Jeffrey Epstein have been in a state of mind that drove him to take his own life? Dr. Frank Farley, a good friend of this program's, past president of the American Psychological Association. He's a blogger for Psychology Today magazine. And, Frank, as I like to say, you're one of us. <laughs> you're Canadian. Indeed. How are you, Frank? I'm good. How are you, Roy? I'm great. Uh, let's let's talk about this. When you when you look at Jeffrey Epstein and you look at the the suicide, what do you see as as a psychologist? What what what, what occurs to you? Okay, well firstly you realize it's
3: it's speculation because I'm not, you know, with him or of course. wasn't with him and so on. But um, well up front, um, I would say that uh, pedophiles tend to have a higher suicide rate in prison anyway. So that's the first statistic to consider. But I've, uh, I have a kind of a short list of things that I think should be considered in regard to Epstein. Uh, number one in my list would be the whole problem of failure. You know, this is a guy who was phenomenally successful. And wow, accepting failure. Uh, you know, for a person like him, is really difficult. You know, he has a, just a low tolerance for failure. This is a guy who's got mansions around the world, his own island, famous friends, all of that sort of stuff. And, and the fact that it's very clear the failure was due to a flaw in his own character, you know, that, that's a failure of your own making. And so that hurts more than if it was due to forces, you know, outside of himself that he couldn't control. All his troubles are due to him. So for a highly accomplished person, boy, that is exceptionally difficult to accept. So that would be the, my first uh, thought. Um, my, my second one would be um, the humiliation that's coming And it's going to get it would have gotten much worse when he goes to court. It would be just universal, global kind of assault on on him and and humiliating him. Uh, Number three on my list is uh, one topic that is associated very frequently with suicide, which is hopelessness. Uh, Related to that is depression. And, uh, you know, he may be getting pretty depressed over this and feeling there's no exit. It's hopeless, uh, that uh, from mansions and his own private island, he will end up in a cage for the rest of his days. And uh, so hopelessness is, is often associated with suicide. There's another interesting concept associated with suicide. It's called psychic pain, P-A-I-N, psychic pain. It's a, it's a sort of, you know, we have physical pain. But the psychic pain is a kind of intractable pain, like, you know, everything's going wrong. I was at the top of the world, incredibly successful, and, you know, a, a bona fide member of the 1%, and now everything is going wrong, everything. And my whole world is collapsing. I have absolutely no control over anything. And it can develop a kind of a psychic intractable pain where you see only one way out to deal with that pain, and then the f- final thing I would put uh, on the list would be his age, and uh, that he's facing was facing his final years of life in a cage. You know, and normally we look forward to a retirement of you know the golden years, <laughs> but uh, he would be spending the final year his final years in a cage, and. Um, And there's no privacy, you know, no privacy for a man who owned his own island and controlled his own life in almost every aspect. No privacy at all. So those would be my five uh, main factors that I would figure are
0: at, at work. Or were at work. So here's a guy who had uh, did everything his way, and I know you have no empathy for him for for the deeds we know he's committed no. because he would spend time in prison for doing them. It was a pretty soft sentence that he got in Miami, but you, this 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 would have been churning, could have been churning around in his brain. This is how he saw himself. He couldn't turn to himself for strength because he's he he's. I'm, I'm just trying to internalize what what you said. He's he sees himself as. Every, I've lost everything, and it's because of me, and I, and, and I have nothing w- w- had but uh, sitting in a cage. Plus, there's the prison justice issue that he'd have to deal with because sure. uh, pedophiles are not exactly high on the pecking order. He's going to be a oh, target for God, everybody. Oh. Uh, oh. So, so he decides at that point, uh, I'm not going to live with this. I'm going to kill myself. Yep.
3: Well, I think that uh, probably covers it, Roy, you know. No exit. I mean, this is the only exit strategy that he saw. And you were right about pedophiles in prison. They, you know, at the bottom of the pecking order, as it were.
0: Yeah, I remember and, doing, a, uh, doing a show in prison with the inmates committee, Frank, and we were talking about Clifford Olson, who was the serial child rapist murderer in Canada, and I asked the uh, the inmates committee... At the time, because Olson wanted to be put, be put in a general population of a prison, not be uh, s- segregated. I said, what would happen to Clifford Olson if he were put into the general population of this prison? The answer came back instantly. He would be murdered. Oh, and yeah. There was no hesitation. that He would not survive. We would get to him, and that would be the end of that. So, Frank, I, I thank you. I know we've just had a little bit of time, uh, but thank you for sharing that. And, I, I, you know, if he committed suicide, and that seems to be that's the official position anyway, then... I agree with you. That probably was his mindset. Thank you, sir. Yep, you're welcome. Good talking to you, Frank. Thanks, Farley. Doctor Frank Farley, uh, past president of the American Psychological Association. I shed no tears for Epstein, and the investigation will continue. Let's get at uh, the issue of our climate, though. Doctor Bjorn Lomborg was named by Time Magazine as one of the world's 100 most influential people. He founded and directs the Copenhagen Consensus Center think tank, and that's copenhagenconsensus.com. And uh, while Dr. Lomborg agrees humans are creating climate change, he argues the panic announcements, about 18 months to save the planet, are nonsense. Dr. Lomborg writes in his international newspaper column, a year ahead of the U.S. presidential election, exaggeration about global warming is greater than ever, while some politicians continue incorrectly to insist it's all made up. For most, uh, insist, also incorrectly, that we face an imminent climate crisis threatening civilization. And uh, Dr. Lomborg adds, don't let climate scientists spoil your summer barbecue. Now you tell me, Dr. Lomborg, I haven't taken the cover off the barbecue since last winter.
4: Hey, Roy, good to talk to you,
0: too. Yeah, good to have you on the show. So when, when Prince Charles tells us, and uh, we hear it parroted around the world, that we only have 18 months to save the planet from climate cataclysm, what's the truth?
4: Well, it's uh, this is simply untrue and in a number of different ways. Uh, first of all, that's what the UN Climate Panel actually tells us. They tell us if we don't do anything by 2070, the cost of unmitigated climate change will be equivalent to each one of us on average on this planet losing somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of our income. Remember, by then we'll be two to three times richer on average on this planet. So it's simply not the end of the world. It is a problem, yes, and it is something that we should be aware of, but telling you this is the end of the world is simply silly. An other way that we know this is because They have been saying this since the late 1980s. They've been giving us 5, 10, 7, 13 years, uh, and we've run out of all of those uh, uh, limits. And, of course, nothing has actually happened. So, again, this is a bad way to communicate, and it's a bad way to get people to realize it's a problem. It's not the end of the world, but it's not nothing either.
0: Now, in your New York Post column, you write that relentless climate exaggeration has to stop in favor of smart and cost-conscious solutions. What are they?
4: Well, fundamentally, the problem with global warming is that right now we don't have the technology to dramatically reduce carbon emissions. A lot of people put up solar panels and wind turbines and sometimes they make good economic sense, but mostly they don't. We actually subsidize uh, wind and solar globally for about $130 billion today and still it only provides about 1% of global energy. So we spend lots of money and get almost nothing for it. The reality is we cannot get most people to cut most of their carbon emissions with current technology renewables. And so what we should do is invest dramatically more in research and development. Look, that's how we fix pretty much all problems. If we get technology that makes it cheaper for us to fix and better, most preferably cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone will switch. The Indians, the Chinese, and of course, the United States and Europe and everybody else. So we can fix this through technology. But if it keeps being too expensive, we won't fix this. So because of this alarmism, we actually end up focusing on the wrong policies. We end up making these feel-good policies, these show how virtuous i am kind of policies. You put up a solar panel, you feel like you've fixed the problem, but the reality is you've just spent a lot of money to do almost no good. We should invest in research and development into green energy instead.
0: So I read in an essay in The Australian that you wrote, the choice really is clear. Do we want to be remembered? and the future, for being the generation that overreacted and spent a fortune feeling good about ourselves but doing very little, subsidizing inefficient solar panels and promising uh, slight carbon cuts? Or do we want to be remembered for fundamentally helping to fix both climate and all of the other challenges we're facing the world? Now, you just, I'm really just re- writing or reading what you wrote which you just explained to us but there's a dollar figure here I see as well and it's how to spend 162 billion dollars to fix climate and everything else would you speak to that
4: yes so boy this is this is an excellent summary right now we spend as I said 163 billion on all subsidies on renewables right and it buys us almost nothing. Uh, so 130 billion goes to solar and wind and the rest is to biofuels and a few other things if we spent that 162 billion smartly we could do so much more good remember we have to spend about 84 billion dollars more on research and development into green energy that would bring us up to about 100 billion dollars a year it would be a six-fold increase of what we're currently spending and this is what would drive the solution in the medium term for climate but that leaves open all these other things that actually matter a lot more to most people around the world. The UN actually did a survey of about 10 million people, the biggest survey ever, of what people want. They asked them, what are your top priorities? Gave them a list of 16 different things. They also put climate in there. But the top outcomes for most people around the world, or not very surprisingly, education, healthcare, nutrition. At the very bottom came climate change. And that's because most people actually just want their kids to survive. They want to avoid easily curable infectious diseases and get their kids an education, make sure that they get good food. And we could do all of that. So this would be about feeding kids better. This would be about making sure that, they, that we have better research and development to get high-yielding varieties so that we can have a second green revolution. That would solve feeding people. We could also give uh, immunization to many more kids. We could save about a million kids dying each year for about a billion dollars. And then we should also be focusing on many of these other simple things like getting contraception to women Uh, a lot of women around the world don't have access it could allow them to space their kids better and actually drive both a, a population reduction but also much higher economic growth and crucially free trade if we could get more free trade we could lift many more people out of poverty and we could make the world much better all of this has some costs But actually, I showed this and a few other things could be possible within one hundred and sixty two billion dollars. So my question is, do we want to spend all of that on useless renewables or do we actually want to find a smart solution to climate and all the other issues of the world? Do we want to be remembered for wasting money? Are actually fixing the world.
0: So why aren't we doing and slightly? Why are we doing this? We we have a prime minister uh, who tells us that a national carbon tax is going to be, you know, a significantly important factor in controlling climate cataclysm.
4: Well, I mean, to a large extent, this is because it's much easier to conjure up this fake. The end of the world is coming, and then I can be your savior. Uh, we've seen this countless times from politicians in all kinds of different areas. And the climate cat- uh, 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 catastrophe that's being, uh, that's being uh, portrayed is obviously easy to say, oh, I'm going to be your savior. And remember, most of the costs will come much further down the road, so you can get to be the politician who says, I'm going to save you, and then somebody else will actually have to implement it. The other point, of course, is to remember, that this is what matters to most rich people. Our kids don't die from easily curable infectious diseases. They have enough food. They get good education typically. So we are not all that worried about it. And so maybe we can better afford to spend this this, uh, amount of resources poorly on climate change. But the reality still remains, and Roy, if I can just show you this one uh, statistic, which I find absolutely amazing, if everyone in the rich world, so in Canada, the U.S., Europe, Japan, Australia, all the other places, if everyone turned off all their emissions of CO2 today and kept it off for the rest of the century. Remember, we have no idea how we'd get through tomorrow or next month. But if we could actually do that, the difference in temperature will only be 0.4 degrees by the end of the century. We will just about be able to measure it. And this simply points out what everyone knows, but nobody wants to point out. This is all about getting China and India and all the other developing countries to cut down their CO2 emissions. And of course, they're not gonna do that as long as their populations are poor and there's huge opportunity for access for cheap and reliable energy. What we need to be able to provide is not niceties or promises that Canada or others are going to try to cut down on their CO2 emissions. We need better technology that will actually fix this
0: problem. The uh, Copenhagen Consensus Center was named Think Tank of the Year by Prospect Magazine and U.S. International Affairs. One of Dr. Lomborg's books, and it's internationally so famous is Cool It. And uh, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Dr. Lomborg. Thank you so much for the time today. Likewise, sir. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, and it's copenhagenconsensus.com. That's how you can get to the website of the think tank. I've known about Rob Baltovich for quite some time, and I followed his case and his story. And uh, I was in touch with Rob over a period of time, and I asked him to be on this program. And he got back to me and he said, I uh, can't do it right now because the civil case is underway, but I will call you when I can. And uh, Rob got in touch with me a couple of weeks ago, and we had a long talk. And he's, uh, he's with us now on the program, and I've already laid out for you that Rob was accused of, tried for, convicted of, the murder of his girlfriend, Elizabeth Bain, he was sent to prison. Didn't do it. Eight years in prison. Didn't do it. I'm not, not going to tell his story. He is... Rob, thanks for coming on, and thanks for being willing to share what happened to you. It's very important.
5: Well, thanks for having me. Yes, uh, it is a, a rather interesting case, and uh, it's one that uh, we continue to learn more and more about, uh, even up until this day.
0: It's important that we find out about wrongfully convicted or innocently convicted innocent people were convicted of serious crimes, including murder. Let's start. Let's start with with, with how it all began. For you can you give us a, just a summary of your case? Can we start with that?
5: Well, I, I guess uh, I could start by just um, kind of describing um, You know the, the very first uh, time I met Liz I met Liz actually um, out in front of uh, a class that we shared um, In the fall of 1987 um, I was a student at Scarborough campus, which is a suburban campus of the University of Toronto. Liz was as well And uh, we knew each other for about two years before we started dating. And um, we began dating in the summer of 1989. And we've been uh, in a relationship for about a year. Um, When she, you know, left her home one day on June 19, 1990, she told her mother she was going um, to Scarborough Campus, the University of Toronto, and she never came back. And um, that's really all that we know about uh, her fate up until this day but uh it was it was a very loving relationship we had some ups and and downs but you know for them for the most part it it wasn't particularly uh, volatile certainly not to the degree that i think a lot of people who would have read newspaper articles at the time would have led to believe but um you know like any relationship we had our disagreements but for whatever reason, um, shortly after she went missing, and she is missing to this day, um, the police developed a theory that I was the person responsible, and um, that's really how everything kind of got started.
0: So, so let's talk about that, or you talk to us, please, uh, about the, about the, the case itself. Uh, walk us through that.
5: Well, um, I was actually on my way to the campus on the night that Liz went missing, and uh, I worked there, and uh, I had just recently graduated, and I was actually on on my way for a workout, and I just happened to see her car parked on the north side of Old Kingston Road. In Scarborough, which is uh, next to a park, which is in turn adjacent to the University of toronto scarborough Campus, and right away, I just I knew something was wrong because uh, it was 6:45 in the evening. She had a class uh, that started at seven o'clock, and I stopped and I investigated because I just felt that um, there was really no reason for her car uh, to be there at, at that time. And by the time I left, and she hadn't showed up, I. Basically decided that I was going to go to her class that night to make sure she had made it there safely And so I did go to her class after I worked out and uh, she didn't come out And so from there I thought, okay, well that's even stranger So uh, I immediately drove to her house and i spoke to her mother and i said is liz here and she said no i said have you seen her and she said well i saw her about five hours ago but i haven't seen her since i said well she didn't show up for her night class and i'm worried about her and i saw her car uh, down in the park adjacent to the campus and that's when her mother first told me that liz had told her sometime around four o'clock that that's where she was going but uh, she certainly didn't make it back and so by the next morning Um, She hadn't come home. Her mother called me and uh, asked me if Liz was at my home. I said, no. I said, she's not. I never did see her last night. And she said, well, she said she didn't come home. And I said, okay, well, then something's definitely wrong. And it was shortly after that that Liz uh, was reported missing. And so for, I guess, the next 48 hours, uh, I, along with her family and friends, uh, we just searched frantically for her. Uh, and her car, because, of course, her car was missing as well. Her car, which I had seen on the night that she went missing, was actually gone uh, by the time I went back to check um, that same area. Mm -hmm. And um, it was probably about 24 hours before her car was found on the following Friday, which would have been three days after she went missing, that uh, we learned later that the police had come to the conclusion Uh, that I was the person responsible for her disappearance and um, I guess within a couple of days after that um, I was being interrogated by two homicide detectives and uh, I was being told in no uncertain terms that they believed I was the person uh, who was responsible for her disappearance and what they believed to be her murder.
0: So uh, did you got the sense that the decision had been made by the police that you were guilty?
5: Well, I certainly knew that the decision had been made that I was guilty by the following Sunday. So that would have been five days after Liz had been missing. Uh, What I didn't realize and what my original lawyers didn't realize until about 14 years later is that Liz's car had been found on the Friday following the Tuesday of her disappearance within a half an hour of finding her car and finding a quantity of blood Uh, that belonged to her in her car. Of course, her body wasn't in the car. Um, They had already um, made plans to eventually arrest me. They had actually arranged for me to be put under surveillance. And uh, in that application for surveillance, uh, it had been written that um, it is believed that uh, the missing woman, Elizabeth Bain, was murdered by the suspect, Robert Boltovich. So I guess to put a button on it, you could say, within a half an hour of finding Liz's car, um, they were making plans to arrest me.
0: So, Rob, you were, the, you were the only one they were looking at, right?
5: Yeah, I was really the only suspect, and um, uh, I think the police certainly um, made no apologies for that. Um, It looks like they really weren't interested in looking at uh, any other suspects uh, pretty much from the outset of their investigation, if I could even call it that. I actually actually like to uh, refer to it more as a prosecution than I do an investigation.
0: Well, let's talk about that, because one of the things that I remember in our conversation off the air on the phone was you repeatedly said to me, I trusted the justice system. I, mm. felt, I felt I could trust it. Even when I was in court, even when the jury was coming back, I felt I can trust the justice system to treat me fairly. What happened?
5: Well, I think that the problem was is that, you know, I was a recent graduate from university. I'd never been in trouble with the law before. So I guess in my mind, I just didn't quite believe that an innocent man could be arrested. And then when I was arrested, I said, well, I certainly can't be convicted. And it wasn't really up until the moment that I was that I realized that, um, you know, we have a criminal justice system that makes mistakes. Now, I think that people are much more willing to believe that our system isn't perfect and that it isn't infallible now. But uh, for me, yeah, I mean, I, I even, like I said to my mother, because, of course, my parents were terrified, and said, you know, it, it's okay it's okay eventually they're going to figure this out they're going to realize i didn't do it they're going to find the real killer And it it really wasn't until they read the verdict out that I, I realized just how incredibly naive and perhaps falsely optimistic i'd been
0: tell us about the trial
5: well the trial um you know i actually had to wait until the trial before i i even really knew what the quote unquote evidence was and you know it, it, i i could really like Divided into two, it it consisted of uh, a a lot of friends and family members um, who said good things and bad things to say about me uh, and about our relationship. And then there were three other witnesses that I would refer to as identification witnesses. So basically the case was, if I could summarize it, um, a woman who believed that she had seen me with Liz on a picnic table on the night that she had gone missing sometime around 5.30 in the evening, which, as it turns out, was a time when I was at home with my brother, my sister-in-law, and my mother. There was another witness who claimed that she had seen Liz parked in her car in the passenger seat sometime at 8.30 in the evening on the night that she went missing. And the third witness, the witness whose evidence essentially led to my arrest was a man who claimed that he had seen Liz's car being driven three days after she had gone missing and only a few hours before the police had recovered it. And he was asked to provide a description. He provided a description. He was ignored for four months. And then four days before I was arrested, they went to him And he picked my picture out of a photo lineup. And the theory then became that I killed Liz sometime on the night of Tuesday, June 19th, 1990, and that I returned to retrieve her body. I put it in her car, and I drove it about an hour northeast of Toronto, three days after she went missing. And somewhat shockingly, uh, and I would say almost incomprehensibly, um, the jury actually accepted that theory, and uh, I was convicted. Uh,
0: There's something I remember about the case of Glen Assoon. We were talking about that on this show a few weeks ago when he was officially exonerated and officially allowed to get on with his life, and that was, and and also with with, uh, Ronald Dalton, who was charged with murdering his wife before the autopsy of his wife had actually been completed. Mm-hmm. There was, was there not uh, a situation in your case where there was evidence that should have gone to your defense team from the police and it just didn't quite ever make it to your lawyers? Yes,
5: there was actually quite quite a lot of evidence that didn't. And um, most of that evidence that we discovered Uh, in both the police investigative file and the Crown brief, we discovered prior to my appeal in 2004. um, One of the major pieces, some might even say was the major piece of evidence that was never disclosed to my defense is that on the night that Liz went missing, I was actually at her class waiting for her. Well, as it turns out, the Crown asked the jury to find that that was a lie, that I actually hadn't been waiting for Liz outside of her class, nor would I have been, because I had actually murdered her two hours before. As it turns out, there was someone who had seen me at Liz's class that night who had spoken to the police and given them a statement. That evidence was never disclosed to my lawyers at my trial. There was also an allegation that Liz had given me what some would call a Dear John letter, a letter telling her that she no longer wanted to see me anymore. And I had actually told the police that she had given me A diary entry. I gave that diary entry to Liz's father. He gave that diary entry to the police. That police officer then gave it to the Crown. The Crown never disclosed the existence of that. So I sat through an entire trial listening to two Crown prosecutors allege that my girlfriend had given me my quote-unquote walking papers three days before she went missing, and it turns out that the very diary entry that she had given me that I had told the police about was sitting in their possession there was an allegation I had stolen diary pages and they actually submitted an empty binder into evidence at the trial that empty binders contents were actually found in a bankers box in possession of the crown in 2004 so this is unfortunately a problem that was was quite Prevalent, I would say probably about 15 to 20 years ago, undisclosed evidence, evidence of innocence, exculpatory evidence that simply isn't turned over to the defense. I know that that was an issue in the Glenn Hassoun case. It was certainly uh, an issue in mine. Uh, but it wasn't really until 2013 that we learned that there was another piece of undisclosed evidence that was uh, never. I uh, turned over to even my appeal lawyers or my trial lawyers in 2008. As it turns out, four days after I was arrested, uh, one of the two lead detectives had a meeting at the Center for Forensic Sciences during which he was told that there was simply no possible way that his theory of how I would have had to commit the crime would have been scientifically possible. The existence of that meeting were kept a secret And not only was the existence of that meeting kept a secret, but in 1999, when uh, I I retained new appeal counsel, uh, the allegation, I will say it's an allegation because we have not yet proven this in a court, although I believe we will be able to, is that that police officer removed any reference to that meeting from his uh, memo book. And he actually photocopied a copy without that page in his memo book. And he sent that to my lawyers, to the Crown prosecutors, and to the Court of Appeal. So, yeah, it would definitely be correct to say that um, much of my appeal and I think much of my civil suit um, is very much based on the idea that there was a mountain of uh, evidence that pointed to my innocence that was never turned over to my counsel.
0: Rob, in just a few seconds, what's it, what's it like to hear somebody pronounce you guilty of murder and send you to prison with no chance of getting out for 17 years plus?
5: Well, I guess um, I had a little bit of uh, a sense of foreshadowing because um, the judges charged the jury... I think by all accounts was uh, remarkably unfair and so I was kind of assuming the worst but even up until that moment uh, I didn't think it was really going to happen and when it did I was just in a state of shock but I just wanted to be strong
0: Rob let's talk about uh, the the appeal and how that succeeded and where does Paul Bernardo fit into the picture
5: well uh, about a year after I was convicted and sitting in a penitentiary um, Paul Bernardo was arrested and charged with Scarborough rapes and the murders of Leslie Mie and Christian French. And so, you know, it was really within a matter of about a week that we realized that you know, this was an individual who might very well uh, have been uh, responsible for Liz's disappearance. He was living in the area at the time. He was only about a five minute drive from Scarborough campus. And so a private investigator that uh, had been part of my legal team started investigating that. And, you know, he found some uh, evidence to suggest that he might very well have been responsible. certainly was a viable suspect and and not someone that the police ever really considered. And so um, my appeal took a very long time. uh, But before that happened, I was actually uh, released on bail uh, before my appeal was actually heard because of the fact that my lawyers had uncovered the uh, evidence that I was at Liz's classroom on the night that she went missing. And this
0: was after you'd served eight years?
5: This was after I'd served eight years. So I was actually released on bail pending the hearing of my appeal, and it actually looked like the case was probably going to be dropped, but of course that didn't happen. And then in 2004, we had our appeal. Uh, We presented evidence suggesting that uh, Bernardo might be the person responsible. Uh, My lawyer certainly argued that uh, evidence that was available to the Crown and the police Um, and that wasn't disclosed, should have been. Um, But ironically enough, the reason why I was granted a new trial and the reason why my wrongful conviction was quashed was because the Court of Appeal uh, had determined that the charge to the jury by the judge uh, was so biased and one-sided that uh, it effectively um, rendered my uh, trial moot. So uh, my conviction was quashed. We asked for an acquittal. Uh, We didn't get it. Um, But instead, they uh, substituted um, a quashed um, conviction and they ordered a new trial. And then for four months, sorry, four years after that, and just when it looked like they were actually going to have a retrial, uh, during which I think that the Bernardo evidence was going to be a huge part of that trial, um, the Crown at the last minute decided that uh, they had no evidence to offer, and they asked the jury to acquit me.
0: After all of that? After everything that you've just described to us, from the beginning of our conversation to to right now, everything you experienced, everything you went through, the eight years in prison, suddenly the Crown has no evidence and they want you acquitted.
5: Yeah, it was, it was 18 years, wow. and uh, certainly eight years post-release, where I never really knew whether the case was going to get back yeah. in court or not, and then suddenly on the eve of what I thought was going to be a great opportunity for me. Uh, to not only be found not guilty, but to be able to prove my innocence, prove that I was not the person who committed this crime. Um, they stood up and they asked the judge to instruct the jury to acquit me. So I wasn't disappointed that I was found not guilty. But there was a small part of me that always felt like I never really did get a chance um, to have the case exposed Uh, to the full light of day, and uh, in some respects, I still kind of regret that.
0: Were there repercussions for any of the police officers of the Crown who did not provide to your lawyers the evidence that they should have provided, which would have given you uh, the opportunity and and, and, and every chance to walk out of that initial courtroom free?
5: Well, I can tell you that up until the time of my acquittal, In 2008 there were not repercussions and in fact the exact opposite they were actually handsomely rewarded Um, one of the two lead detectives became deputy chief of police Uh, another one of those detectives became head of homicide Um, another detective by 2011 had become deputy chief of police in his own right and one of the crown prosecutors is now a judge so far from being sanctioned for what happened in my case they were actually rewarded now, in terms of being ultimately held accountable, um, that, ha, that, is yet, uh, that, that remains to be seen because, of course, I have a, I have a civil suit, and the allegations are that uh, there were um, uh, efforts made by both the police and the Crown to intentionally withhold evidence from my defense. I can't really get too, too much into detail about that, um but ultimately i think how the civil suit plays out will will say something about whether the court uh, believes that uh, they should be held um, either partly or fully responsible for my wrongful conviction
0: and the civil suit is coming to a close right
5: i think the civil suit is very close uh, to coming to a close i mean whether it settles or whether it goes to trial um, we're in the latter stages now there's a part of me Uh, that would certainly like uh, to see this case get a full public airing because I think when the public finds out what actually happened in this case, um, I think they're going to be quite shocked, far more shocked than uh, I think they would they would think based on what's been in the media up
3: until this point.
0: So now all of this happens to you. You are acquitted because the Crown raises the white flag and says, we have nothing, your honor. Mm -hmm. Tell the jury to acquit Mr. Baltovich. Even though we, there was a trial and he was found, we don't have nothing. Let him go. He didn't do it. What is the impact on your life after that? There, there has to be fallout. There has to be, I mean, it, it can't just, it, it doesn't just end there, does it?
5: Well, you know, you know sometimes some, some, some psychologists refer to, you know, the, the stages of grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, I would say that uh, for maybe the first couple of years, I was just so relieved and happy that it was over. Um, that I didn't really spend a lot of time dwelling on it. It it wasn't really until maybe I had a little bit more time to think about that that a lot of the anger set in, particularly because I felt like um, by the time of my appeal in 2004, the Crown really should have known that there was never any case to be made. Mm -hmm. And yet for another four years, I was dragged back to court with the threat of being put on trial again. And it was, and during that time, I suffered personally, but more importantly, professionally. And so a lot of the the anger that I feel toward the system and toward the uh, Crown prosecutors and the police is just because I felt like there were so many opportunities they had to do the right thing and just admit that they'd made a mistake. And they didn't do that. Um, so I mean, in a certain sense, I guess I can say, I'm at peace. I accept the fact that it's happened. But I'll never be happy until I feel like the people who are responsible for this are held accountable. And I don't think that's happened yet.
0: How do people treat you? How does the general public treat you once they know who you are once they recognize the story? And with the Internet uh, being what it is, people can find out things immediately. How are you treated?
5: Well, you know, ironically, um, I felt like in some ways I was maybe treated better before the case became a little bit of a media circus because if it's the first thing that people know about you okay it's very difficult I think for them to put it out of their minds the fact that they're actually face to face with someone who's been wrongly convicted of murder and so that tends to affect your relationships with people. It definitely affected me professionally, I would say more than personally. It's it's very difficult, and in the age of the uh, internet now, people, they find out your name, you apply for a job, they want to look you up, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, there's so much controversy surrounding this person. You would think that being acquitted would be enough to put people's minds at ease, but sadly it isn't, and in many respects, just the fact that you have so much controversy surrounding you um, it can definitely affect your relationships fortunately it hasn't affected my my family uh, and my friends as much but I would say that um, getting your reputation back um, is a very daunting task um, when you've been wrongly convicted and I think if you talk to anybody they'll tell you that even if you feel like people do accept you there's always that that doubt in your mind you know do, do these people really believe i'm innocent do they secretly think that maybe i am guilty and and so i don't think that really ever goes away so as i've said before i don't think that you ever really get back to where you were
0: glenn 17 years ron dalton 10 years david Milgard. 23 years Mm -hmm. Rob Baltovich 10 years I've talked to all four of you in the last few weeks I'm guessing there are others in our Canadian prisons who are not guilty of what they've been Convicted of Rob, mm-hmm. thank you very much for 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 joining us. I I really appreciate it. The, the story needs to be told, understood, as do the stories of others who were wrongfully uh, convicted who are innocent of the crimes of which they were convicted. It's it you can't have that happen. It does happen. You can't have it happen. All the very best to you.
5: Well, thanks, and uh, the best to you as well. Thank you for uh, the chat.
0: Thank you, Rob Baltovich okay. on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. What a story. Now yeah, we said before. If, if these four men were convicted of crimes they didn't commit, it could happen to anybody. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.